Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Truth and Justice Friday follow-up episode. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. This week's episode hopefully will sound okay. Uh, Mike is actually on the phone with me. I am up at our family's cabin for our annual beer camp. We're trying something new here. We didn't want to skip this week's episode, so Mike and I are recording remotely. So you have Mike at the helm right now at the computer in the studio, and I am sitting on a lazy boy in my cabin up in northern Michigan right now. I'm wearing camouflage pants for any of you that care. Uh, I'm wearing some rubber camouflage boots, and I'm, I'm quite comfortable not having to do any of the work in the studio. How you doing, Mike? I'm staying busy, Chief. I promise you that. Well, good. Well, then let's go ahead and start the show, and we're going to try to make this a little quicker than normal because I've got more fear to kill. So let's start out with the email. Sounds good. Okay, Chief. Our first email is from Michael. Michael says, can you give a quick rundown on what physical evidence still exists versus what was destroyed? I'd been under the impression that it was all gone, courtesy of Smith County. Yeah, it's a good question, Michael. And actually, we don't really know what all still exists. I was under the impression that all the physical evidence was stored at Smith County. And I've been getting the runaround for Smith County for months about that. Part of the open records request that I have into them right now that we, by the way, have still not received is the chain of custody log to figure out where all of the physical evidence is. We have some items, the items that were introduced at trial, but we don't know where things like the comforter are, the curtain, any of those things. However, through this open record request from the Department of Public Safety Crime Lab that we discussed in this week's episode, and for those of you that want to go through point by point, I don't have the document in front of me right now, but in that document that's posted on the website, the last several pages are an inventory of what they tested and what they kept. And it was actually David Dobbs who told me that maybe we should check with the crime lab to see if they kept any evidence frozen. Because typically, they'll take, say, like the comforter. They'll take a swab off of a stain, put it onto a slide, and test it. They'll send the comforter back to Smith County, but they will freeze and keep the evidence that they tested. So according to that document, it looks like the crime lab in Dallas at the DPS that there's still quite a bit of physical evidence still stored and frozen. As far as what still exists in Smith County, at this point, I could not tell you. This next email comes from Christine Black. Christine says, 
Regarding the clear fibers, did Angela have any hair extensions at that time? Cheap hair extensions could be synthetic and translucent. Just a thought. Keep fighting the good fight, Christine. Okay, thanks, Christine. Uh, that's a good question. I do not know exactly the answer to that. I do have some recent pictures of Angela that I've had a few people, after receiving your email, a few people that work in the hair industry, that work in beauty salons and things, I had them look at her photos. And they said that in some of those photos, she is definitely wearing a, what they call a weave or a wig. I don't, I don't know what the difference is between the two of those. And then I asked them about the clear fibers, too, and neither of them could give me a definitive answer. But they both said that it's not out of the question that there would be clear synthetic fibers as part of a weave. So it doesn't give us anything real definitive, but it does look like she currently wears a weave, at least sometimes in some of her photos. And it's possible that a weave could contain translucent or clear fibers within them. All right, and on to our last email. This one's from Jess Brown, and she makes a couple points here, but we're just going to focus on one. Okay. Regarding the possible toe stubbing, she writes, If a woman was spying or prowling, perhaps intending to catch her cheating partner out, might she remove her shoes as they are more likely to have heels or hard soles in order to remain quiet? That might explain why she stubbed her toe during the struggle. I guess that's possible. Remember, we don't know for sure that somebody stubbed their toe, and we don't know for sure either if Angela was there or had anything to do with this. But working on that theory, what Jess is referring to here is what was mentioned in episode 243, where that trim piece on the floor, the baseboard trim, was kicked off of that short wall between the living room and the kitchen, and then we had that weird blood spatter on the side of that wall. And I've been taking a closer look at that, and I actually had a listener who works in blood spatter take a look at it, and they weren't able to tell me a whole lot. But what they were able to tell me is that it is very unlikely that the blood drops that are on that wall came from the same source as the blood drops that are on the floor. Now, when she was referring to source, she didn't necessarily mean they didn't come from the same person. She just meant that, say, the blood drops that are on the floor came from Elnora when her throat was split and the blood spurting in that direction. This blood spatter expert said that the two different things, the blood spatter on the wall and the blood spatter on the floor, don't look like they came from the same direction meaning there was two different times when that blood was spattered on the wall coming from two different directions. Now, some of the theories that have been kicked around is it could have been that the killer, after killing Elmore, was walking through there and swung the knife, which threw some blood spatter off of it onto the wall. Or then we have the toe-stubbing theory. Regarding Angela or anybody that is prowling around the house taking their shoes off to be quiet, I don't think that that's what we're looking at here, because remember the phone. If we're working on a theory that there were two people back in the bedroom and a third person came in the back door and interrupted them, and they ripped that phone off the wall in the kitchen, they yanked the phone off the wall so hard that they snapped the metal post on the jack. So if they're willing to make that much noise, I can't see them taking their shoes off so they can tiptoe back to the bedroom. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but it would seem like a kind of an odd combination of events. But the other thing that I think we're missing here is the fact that if Elnora was in the middle of a sexual encounter with someone when this attack happened and she was completely nude, then it's also likely that the person that she was with was also completely nude or partially nude. So I think it's very likely that the person she was with had their shoes off when the attack occurred. And so I was trying to look back at this pattern of blood on the wall compared to the piece of trim that was knocked off. And I think that it's possible. I, I won't even say probable. I just don't know. But I think that it's possible that someone walking through there stubbed their toe on that piece of trim and cut their toe 
and then jumped up and kicked their foot up and would have splashed blood from their own toe onto that wall. And again, I'm not saying that's even probable. I don't know what happened with the trim and the blood on the wall. But I think that's a scenario that is at least a possibility. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Uh, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> you got me, Chief. <laughs> I've, I've been taking a nap while you've been talking this entire time. Never mind. Let's just see what happens when I'm not in the studio with you. Yeah, it's a cluster. All right, Chief, we're going to start with Facebook responses. Okay. This first one comes from Sharon Putnam Summers. Sharon says, brown stain theory. Theory number one, chewing tobacco spit. And theory number two, coughed up phlegm from a smoker is brown and ooey. Okay, I think we can rule out the coughed up phlegm or spit just based on the sheer volume of it. When you look at that photo, you can see, I mean, that's a pretty big amount of whatever it is. I mean, it takes up a couple inches on the bed and then soaks in further. But I don't think it was just a coughing up. And I had a few listeners suggest that maybe it was vomit or something like that. But I kind of think that's unlikely, too, for the opposite reasons because of the volume. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think that it's like phlegm or something that was coughed up by a smoker. And I don't think that it's vomit. I mean, of course, I don't know, but I don't think so on either of those. Now, the chewing tobacco spit, that has some possibility because typically if somebody chews tobacco and they spit, a little more volume than what you have with just a normal spit. Right. As gross as that sounds. And there's, of course, still the possibility that we had discussed a couple of months ago that Elnora was spitting after either forced or consensual oral sex. I have to be honest, I am just baffled by this thing still. I mean, there's several theories and things that it may be, but when I saw that report that it said that it was definitely not semen, number one, I'm baffled because I can't figure out where the semen stain is. And I went through this before, and as a matter of fact, a listener, and I cannot pull his name right now, I think his first name was Dan, uh, had emailed way back then saying that he thought it was feces or something else. And I think I had told him that, no, it has to be the semen stain. It's the only stain on the comforter. And I had to kind of eat my words because obviously it's not, but I just have no idea where that semen stain is. And all I can do is speculate as to what this brown stain actually is. Right. Sorry, Dan. Your guess is as good as ours, Dan. <laughs> okay, Chief, uh, we've got another Facebook response here from Shannon Besher-Thomas. Okay. Shannon has three points. Her first point is, clear or white fibers make me think of Velcro or some other plasticky, durable fiber. Yeah, that's another common response that I've gotten over these last couple of days. People have suggested several things that those clear fibers may have come from. I've had several people say that they could come from like almost like a fishing line type thread that's used to sew the bottom of a mattress or comforter together. People have suggested stuffing from a pillow. Shannon here is saying that it's possible that it could be Velcro or some other plasticky type material. Without knowing exactly what the fibers look like and how big they are, I don't think that we're going to be able to come up with a determination as to what they are, but I think all of these are possibilities. Sure. Okay, her next point is, I have cut off tips of fingernails many times while using my sharp knife. Chip being cut doesn't mean it wasn't during murder. That may be true, and I'm sure people have cut with a knife their fingernails doing things like cooking and things like that. But I don't think that's what we're looking at here. When you go to the trial testimony and read Lorna Beasley's testimony, it sounds pretty clear that they're cut, meaning the way you would cut your fingernails, like an arc around your fingers. Sure. Not just that there was a slice taken out of them by a knife. They were literally cut all the way off like you would when you normally cut your fingernail. Okay. And then her last point is, 
Is it possible that the curtain was already soiled and in the laundry basket prior to the murder and that whoever killed Elnora didn't put it there? I can't say it's not possible, but I think it's pretty doubtful. Number one, there was blood found on the curtain, so that's a pretty good indication that it was part of the murder. Also, you have the fact that the curtain rod is ripped down on the door. So unless somebody reached up to the top of the door and grabbed that rod, the only way to pull it down would have been to grab the curtain. And then Johnny Pryor told us that she actually bought that curtain for Elnora, and it was up on the door as far as she could remember. So with all of that coupled together, especially the blood on it, I think that it's pretty unlikely that it was already there. I think that the killer put it there when they grabbed the towel to go nail up onto the door. Right. Makes sense to me. And now let's move on to the Twitter segment. Okay. Paul Vanette says, Do we know if Waller actually went on vacay? Or is it just a component of the Jolly Rancher rapper chain of custody rigmarole? I don't know how you made it through that tongue twister without flubbing that up. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty tricky. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right, so while we're on vacation, this is really strange. It said in the trial testimony that he was on vacation as of Friday and was going out of town, I believe it said on Sunday, but then he got called back in because of the murder. And then it said on Saturday he turned the case over to Huckel because he was leaving on vacation. And I know for a fact that on Thursday, when they went back to look at the crime scene, went back to look at the car, McKay and Huckel, they said that they were there because Waller was out of town on vacation. And I'll have to go back to the testimony to look and see, but I believe it said that he left to go out of town on Sunday and was gone for two weeks, which all that makes sense, except for the fact that on Tuesday, he signed the paperwork to go to the Department of Public Safety Crime Lab to have all the evidence looked at but he supposedly was out of town. I don't think that any of it really matters, or I don't know how it all fits in, or if it's part of the Jolly Rancher conspiracy, but it's just not adding up to me. So to answer your question, Paul, as far as do we know for sure he was on vacation, at this point, I don't know what the hell was going on. Okay, Chief, our last tweet comes from Jennifer Freeman. She tweets, How does one obtain a semen sample from a suspect? Doesn't seem like something a suspect would easily produce. Um, well, Jennifer... When a boy and girl love each other very much. <laughs> oh, I snorted. <laughs> Obviously, I'm assuming, Jennifer, that you understand the mechanics of how it works. Let's just assume um, that, Chief. Okay, let's do that. Things have gotten gross enough over the last couple of weeks. So as soon as we know the mechanics, uh, it's pretty simple, actually. They just obtain a warrant, and they send them, I guess, to a doctor's office with a plastic cup and maybe a magazine. I don't, I really don't know the answer to that question, Jennifer. But what I do know is that people actually tried to make H look bad about giving the semen sample. And I can't remember off the top of my head if it was at trial or in one of his reports. I believe it was when he was testifying at trial. He said something to the effect of H gave the semen sample, which by the way, didn't take him very long or something. It was completely unprofessional. I think it might've been in that supplemental report now that I'm thinking about it. Or it may have been in trial. I'll have Mike look that up for next week. I'm on it. All right, good. I, I, just, I just remembered just now when I was answering this question that I remember reading that. And I thought, what an unprofessional, shitty thing to say that has no relevance in anything. Yeah. But as far as how they get it done, I really can't answer that for you, Jennifer. Good question, I guess. <laughs> well, I disagree, but we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get into the calls. <laughs> All right, that sounds good.
All right, I'm on the line with Jennifer from New York. How are you doing, Jennifer? Good, Bob. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm, I'm sitting in my truck uh, on top of a hill uh, with my phone and my laptop in my lap, hotspotted to my phone. That's quite the shit show, actually. <laughs> Living the dream, huh? Yep. So Mike says, you have a question about Francis Johnson's blood? Yeah, I was wondering if they had um, tested any of Francis Johnson's DNA against the hairs and the blood found on Elnora's body. No, it's a good question. And no, they didn't. See, Francis Johnson was never really a suspect. Before the first trial or at the very beginning, his name was never mentioned at all. It was Leonard Mosley and Ed Ace. Francis Johnson didn't even come into the equation until Ed was in jail between his first and second trials when he had the conversation with Francis. Then at that point, that's when Ed's attorneys went before the judge, and the judge said, well, we have all these fingerprints. Let's test them against Francis Johnson. And Dobbs convinced him, no, we don't have enough probable cause to do that. Let me go get the medical records. They found the medical records that seemed to show that he was in Georgia, which they actually don't show that he was in Georgia. They said he was in Georgia in August, but not in July. Uh, but they were kind of explaining away the cut that Ed said that he saw on his neck. And so nothing has ever been tested against Francis Johnson. Not fingerprint, not hair, not blood, not semen, no DNA, nothing. That was one of the most frustrating parts. I don't know if you remember that episode from a couple months ago, but it was really frustrating for me when I was reading that hearing when it was being discussed. And Judge Gomert said, well, why don't we just why don't we test the fingerprints right now? And Dobbs was like, no, let's get the medical record first. It was like we were so close to at least, and I'm not saying Francis did it or was involved, but we were so close to at least testing to find out. It ended up not happening, and so now we don't know, at least at this point, unless we find a way to get that stuff tested now. Yeah, and I mean, whether or not, you know, anybody thought he did it, I think there has to be due diligence to at least check into it, because he was around at the time, and there was some suspicious activity and lies surrounding him. It's worth a look, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it was, unfortunately, the prosecution was spending way more time or devoting all of their time into trying to disprove Francis Johnson as being a viable suspect because it hurt their case instead of actually looking into him as a suspect like they should have. Typical, right? Yeah. All right, Jennifer. Well, hey, thanks for calling in. All right. Enjoy the rest of your week. All right. You too. Have a great night, Jennifer. All right. Bye-bye. All right, I am on the line with Amanda from Texas. How are you doing today, Amanda? Quite well, and yourself? Doing really well. Mike says you have a question about Elnora's eyes and the strangulation? I do. This has been really, really begging on me. So Leonard Mosley insists that she was strangled. He doesn't change his story from that in the interview with you. He just says she was strangled to death. And I remember hearing, like, from the autopsy that her eyes had shown signs of strangulation, like the blood vessels had burst, like she had been strangled. Right, yeah, she had the petechia in her eyes. Yes. Is it possible that Leonard was there and he actually strangled her, and then his girlfriend came and caught him there, and he's like, don't worry about it, it's done, she's dead. She goes in to check on it, make sure, be like, what's he doing? And she's starting to get up, and then she cuts her throat as a possibility. Uh, Yeah, I don't think we could rule it out as a possibility. If some people have suggested that maybe someone had strangled her and they thought that she was dead and left, and that was kind of an explanation people said for, you know, if Mosley was lying when I was talking to him, that maybe he thought she was strangled to death and the throat splitting happened later. 
I'm not an expert, so my opinion feels real different than anybody else. To me, it seems unlikely based on the severity of the struggle and everything else. It seems more likely that she escaped the grasp, but it certainly is definitely has to be a possibility, I guess. Right. I was thinking like the struggle happened as she was trying to get up and then see someone else in the house. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that definitely could happen. Uh, you know, and that being whether it was Leonard involved or Angela or Francis Johnson or some third party we don't even know about it with anybody, I think that's a possibility. Right. But the thing that really, really just stuck with me was the fact that Leonard insists that she was strangled. And for yeah, someone he, to insist that they're strangled when they have everything else, that just sets off the red flags for me that he thinks he strangled her. The other thing is, that, and, and I, I don't mean to be devil's advocate, but I just... I want to make sure that we're clear on this. Of the course. other possibility is that, that Leonard was telling the truth and really doesn't know how she was killed. And we, we have to at least consider that that's a possibility. That's what I was thinking. And it's just because, you know, she did show signs of strangulation and Leonard insists that that's how she died. That's right. the only thing that kept ticking it off for me. Yep. I think it's a viable theory. So thank you, Amanda, so much for calling in and participating. Hopefully we'll hear from you again next week. I hope so. If I have any more questions to ask you. <laughs> All right. You have a great night, Amanda. You too. Bye. Right, bye. All right, I am on the line with Megan from Pennsylvania. How you doing, Megan? Good. How are you? Doing really well. So, Mike, does you have a question about some semen? Yes. Um, was the information about Mosley potentially being a source for the semen ever presented at trial? Because clearly they were doing the test to rule him out rather than actually investigate him. But isn't this information something that the jury should have heard? They actually did hear it, and I've had a few people who work in serology and crime labs get in touch with me about this because, you know, I said it just seemed odd that they sent, why did they test his when Ed was their suspect? From what I'm hearing, that's actually normal that they did that. They said that the labs okay. typically will, will like to have a control, you know, so they, they want to rule out any known partners, and since Mosley was a known partner. So I don't think there's anything, sounds like there's nothing nefarious there as far as them sending Mosley samples in to be tested as well. Uh, as far as trial, they, the jury actually did hear about it at trial. And that's, Dobbs did a really good job of getting out in front of the defense's argument during the prosecution side of the case. So instead of waiting for the defense to bring that up and shocking the jury with it, when Beasley was testifying for the prosecution, Dobbs brought it up. And, and Dobbs said, okay, so this says that uh, Mosley could be a possible contributor, right? And then he went on to explain, like, so... Just so we're clear, you know, you can't date a semen stain, right? That semen stain could have been there for two years, and you would have gotten the same result, right? And she's like, yes. And he's like, well, it could have been there for two weeks or two months or two years. It could have even been laundered, and you still would have got that same result, right? And she says yes. So he addressed it in that way before the defense ever got a chance to defend against it. So the jury, by the time the defense got up, the jury had already heard, yes, there was semen on the comforter that wasn't Ed. It's possible that it was Leonard Mosley's, and that's explainable because he's the boyfriend. Uh, but it, it was the one document from the crime lab that was in the discovery file when I found it was the document that said that the semen stain was not Edward H. and that Mosley is a possible contributor of the semen stain. So it was every, everything's above board legally as far as Brady can concern with that. Okay. And I guess the other question, like in regards to that, was. You'd read the notice from that Department of Public Safety thing that it stated that they were doing the additional testing that was requested for the samples for the first trial. You had said the date was for the first trial. 
and that they had asked for a continuance, but was a continuance ever granted or even asked for? And if it wasn't, is that something that the defense could use to sort of say, well, I guess it could be a Brady claim because if the defense had that information that there wasn't enough time for it to be tested, don't you think that they would have asked for a continuance or any of that? Yeah, the, the note about the continuance was actually at the second trial. So the crazy timeline was the fact that, number one, they arrested Ed before they had the evidence tested against him, which is completely bad backwards. They, they should have done that first and to sort of decide whether or not to arrest him. I believe that if they, they followed a normal track of investigation, which would be, okay, we have a hearsay statement from Kubia Jackson, and we have an alibi problem. Okay, that's that's some probable cause, hey, but Chief, it's not Chief, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yep. I got I to gotta back you up. Right when you said, I believe it was, which was the case? Uh-huh. Yeah, the call waiting kicked in right there. So could you go back to just basically explain that very last point you were on? Okay. Okay. Do you know where that is? Uh, nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Megan. All right. We have a bit of a cluster right now happening, Megan, because Mike's <laughs> phone can't block call, call waiting and it keeps beeping in on us. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, where was I at? Okay. <laughs> You, Never mind, just you, just get off the phone. Get off the phone. Keyword is which. <laughs> That's where you were at. Which one? That's very helpful. That's very <laughs> That's helpful. That's all I got. That's all I got, buddy. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me try to pick that back up. Sorry about that. No worries. Which was the entirety of the case against Ed was that hearsay statement and the statement from Monica that his alibi didn't balance out. All that is nothing more than a circumstantial case. It's probable cause, but it's not a case against Ed. So then typically the next thing they would do is then to start testing the evidence and see if they have any legitimate evidence that puts them at the scene. I believe had they done that and it came back and none of it was Ed's, they never would have arrested him in the first place. And that's the most frustrating part about this entire thing is that they jumped the gun and arrested him before they found out that none of the evidence fit him. Right. The second part of your question was the continuance ever granted, and it was. So what had happened was right after the arrest, so this is back in August of 1993, is when the crime lab said, no, we'll send us the hairs and we'll test those. And they never did it. They took them to trial, which happened in 1996. They had the mistrial, and it, was, it wasn't even close. It was in the final vote was six to six for the mistrial. Then they sent the hairs in, and then in April of 97, Beasley sent a letter saying, we need more time, we need a continuance. And the answer to the question is yes, in the trial record, in the pre-trial hearing, they did have a hearing requesting a continuance. Laura Beasley needed more time to get the forensics done on all of the hairs, and that was granted by Judge Gomer. The trial ended up not actually occurring until August of that year. Oh, okay. The information with the hairs was actually presented, and none of it matched Ed. But again, Dobbs did kind of a, a tricky job. He, he did a very, I shouldn't say tricky, he did a very crafty job of not lying at trial. He didn't say anything that was a lie, but he did a very good job of almost manipulating the juror's mind in the way they presented it. So, for example, what happened with the hairs? They know that there was a hair on the bed that was microscopically similar to Ed, and they tested that with DNA and found out it was not Ed's hair and was not Mosley's hair. So the way Dobbs presents his trial is, first he starts talking about the hairs and saying, okay, so there's there was how many hairs? Oh, there were 200 hairs. There were hairs everywhere, right? Yeah. But that happens all the time, right? Yes, of course. So if I walk up to you and walk back, there'd be hairs on the ground, right? 
Sure, there would be. There's hairs everywhere. Anybody could leave hairs. And then he goes into this hair. So from this hair in the bed, you have 200 hairs. We take this one hair. We test it for DNA. And you, who'd you test that against? We tested it against eight. And mostly it was neither of theirs. Okay, that's great. And then we had all these 200 hairs. And then there was hair found on her body. And you tested that against eight too, correct? Yes, I did. And was it his? No, it wasn't. And then he moves on. So the order in which he was presenting them, to me, what it reads as though if you're not paying attention, you are assuming that all of the hairs were tested against eight, Elnora, and Mosley. When the fact of the matter is only the one hair was ever tested against Mosley. The rest, they only tested against Edward Eight. Yeah, and he's certainly downplaying it to start out by just overgeneralizing, saying like, oh, there's hairs everywhere. It could be anyone's hairs in any place at all times. And then it kind of like glazes over the fact that, no, those hairs were on her dead body. Yeah, and he was very good at, I, I will say, David Dobbs is a tremendous lawyer from reading this trial transcript. I mean, he went into this with a shit case. He had a terrible case and managed to win. Yeah. And he did it by, by doing it just like the semen stain. Like I was saying earlier, you know, you're just jumping right out and, yeah, but you know, semen, it can last forever. It can be on the comforter, all this stuff. It just set the jury at ease. It was the same thing with the candy wrappers. I assumed there was a Jolly Rancher wrapper out at the police station, in the guest bathroom, and in the car. And I was wrong. And, and I was pissed off at Dobbs for lying about it until I read the transcript. And he didn't lie about it. I jumped to conclusions. And I think the jury did. As a matter of fact, I know they did because I talked to some jurors. Because he starts talking about, oh, there's candy wrappers, all these things. And, and these candy wrappers are important. We found this Jolly Rancher wrapper at the police station. Yeah, we found that there. And then we found this other Jolly Rancher wrapper on the crime scene in the bathroom. And then there was all these candy wrappers. And he didn't say Jolly Rancher. He said, and then there was all these candy wrappers to where your mind jumps to the conclusion that we're talking about Jolly Ranchers. And so they must right. be Jolly Ranchers. And then he goes back to Jolly Rancher wrappers that were in the trash can and at the police station. And in the midst of talking about that, he goes back into talking about the fact that all of the candy wrappers in the house were Starlight Peppermint. They weren't Jolly. And, of course, he's not saying that he's not testifying. He's pulling this out of Jason Waller and Dale Huckel while they're testifying. He just walked a real fine line of not misrepresenting evidence. He didn't misrepresent the evidence. He just was able to present it in a way to where your minds in a juror's mind would make assumptions that aren't actually correct. And hell, it happened even with Ed's own defense attorney. David Dobbs never said that there was human fecal material on Ed's shoe. He was very careful not to do that. He could just called it a scraping the whole time. But he presented in a way where your mind made that leap on its own to the point where Ed's attorneys got up and they started calling it human fecal material on a shoe. So Dobbs didn't even right. have to say that. His own attorneys did it. And it's because of the way that it was presented. That makes a lot of sense to how, like, the information was able to be missed by the jurors and his attorneys and everything. But really just by, like, Dobbs just doing his job well, it's still disgusting. It's disgusting because we want the prosecutor to bring justice, not to get their conviction at all costs. He was very good right. at presenting his case once he was in court and he's battling it out and getting conviction. And really, when it wants us to that point, that is their job, because a case should never get to that point unless it's legitimate. My complaint about Dobbs' actions was not the way he performed at trial. I mean, he was just really good at trial. It pisses us off because they convicted an innocent man, but he did his job really well. To me, where Dobbs failed was all the way back in August of 1993 when he started pushing for an arrest warrant for a guy that they had no evidence on. That's where it started. Uh -huh. 
Well, Megan, thank you so much for calling in, and uh, hopefully Mike will edit out the little mishaps we had during the middle of all. <laughs> in case you notice after you've listened to this, listeners, that the call was a little jumbled, it's because Mike can't block call waiting on his phone, and he kept having to interject and tell me to restate things, and I forget what I said the second that I said that. So Megan was nice enough <laughs> to put up with that. Thank you, Megan. Well, thank you, and keep up the good work, loving what you're doing. You have inspired me to get involved, and I'm really grateful for it. Awesome. Well, thank you for all your support, Megan. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. For our last call of the night, I am on the phone with Brody from Texas. How are you doing, Brody? Good. How are you, Devon? Doing really well. You might have some theories about the fibers? Yeah, the clear fibers. So my thing that I kept on thinking when y'all were talking about it was, you know how the inside of pillows and comforters, there's that clear kind of fibers that are inside there right like the batting or stuff i was thinking is somehow that got torn or ripped and those fibers got loose and kind of all over her and all over the crime scene yeah i think they could be i talked a little bit about this in the the first segment where we were reading emails and tweets the tricky part is that we don't know anything other than their clear fibers we don't know if they're a centimeter long or a foot long consistency or anything like that but that definitely, I've had several people say that it could be from stuffing from inside of a pillow or a comforter. The only issue is I haven't seen on any of the crime scene photos or described in any of the reports or narratives that any of the pillows or comforter were ripped open. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking too when you were talking about it. Um, you had never mentioned there's no rip or anything. So that's what I got to thinking. I was like, there could be that unless something was hidden. It's a good thought. Hopefully someday we'll get the open record request back from Sixth County and, and maybe we'll know a little bit more. Yeah, that's Texas for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, hey, Brody, thanks for calling, buddy. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Yep. Have a good night. Y'all too. Well, I think that went well, Mike. Yeah. For a cluster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very lonely sitting here without you right beside me. Only you would be lonely in a cabin full of grown men. Well, I'm not sitting in the cab right now. I had to, the phone signal was bad. I, I'm, I'm literally sitting in my truck. I drove down the road on top of a hilltop where I had a good cell signal because I had to have a good enough signal for my computer to work off the hotspot. It's very dark and it's a little scary out here, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, you've got your weapons nearby, right? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I think that went well. Just a real quick button on things. One thing that I wanted didn't mention it in episode 243, and I'm guessing a lot of people have not gone to the website. And for those of you who don't remember, the website is truthandjusticepod.com. If you go to the case documents, and under the eighth case, all the way at the bottom is episode 243's documents. And one thing that I put on there, and I, I really wrestled with it. Mike and I got quite a bit of discussion on whether or not to do this, but I really, really want some feedback on this. So I went ahead and I posted the photo of the fingernail scratches or the potential fingernail scratches that we discussed last week in episode 243. I'm convinced they are fingernail scratches, but I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say. Yeah, that's the thing is I've always, I've never posted photos of Elnora herself and all the photos that are up there I have her cropped out so I, I just really struggled with this and how to get feedback and input on it so what I ended up doing is zooming way in and cropping 
a very, very small segment, just the segment with the fingernail scratches or the scratches, whatever they are, mm-hmm. for people to look at. So you can't see anything else other than this little probably six-inch by six-inch square. So if, if you're not comfortable looking at that, don't. I, I'm still wrestling with it, so hopefully nobody's mad at me for doing that. But I feel like it was done tastefully enough that people can go look. But I would really love for those of you that are interested to go to the website and take a look and let me know what you think. Let me know if you think they're fingernail scratches or if you think there's something else. Let me know. It, that photo is up on the website, so I just wanted to let everybody know that before we close out the show today. Okay, Chief, do you want to give him a little sneak peek for Sunday's episode? Yeah, we can do that. So kind of up in the air. We have, uh, as you caught on the end of episode 243, I was able to track down the man with the white Corvette, Lionel Williams. And I do have an interview with him. It is a very interesting interview. So right now, that is slated to be one of the segments in Sunday's episode. The only way that won't happen is if, by some miracle, David Dobbs decides that in the next three days that he's ready to do the interview with him, and then that will bump the Lionel Williams interview back. But if not, you're either going to hear from David Dobbs on Sunday, or you're going to hear from Lionel Williams on Sunday. Well, if we get the Dobbs interview, I don't think any listeners are going to be upset with that. Yeah, I don't think so. All right, so it was great to hear from everybody in this Friday follow-up episode. We really appreciate all the input. But until then, we'll talk next week. See ya. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. Opening music for today's episode was To the Top by Score Squad. All of the other music that you hear in today's episode was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Ezra Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt for transcribing all the episodes and mailing them out to Ed and Kenny every week. And of course, as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement. These follow-up episodes are really getting to be a lot of fun. I love hearing from you. I love the interaction. And it gives us a chance to just kind of discuss things and not have to produce a perfectly produced episode. As you've heard, they're not always exactly perfectly produced, especially when I'm in a vehicle 300 (laughs) miles away in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) So keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. Don't forget after Sunday's episode to send your feedback for the follow up and use the hashtag on Twitter, Facebook, and in your emails, episode 244. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.